As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. How are you? Alex, uh, we talk about friendship so often on this podcast, and uh, the New York <laughs> Times had a real interesting take on art friends. So yeah. I, think, I think we need to touch on that. Yeah, and there is a sort of a soft legal angle. Uh, we're going to talk about the bad art friend, if you're listening and you know what that is, you can keep listening. If you don't know what we're talking about, you can either smash the fast forward or just pause and Google bad art friend New York Times. Um, it's interesting, I, though, the I way... I think people should read it. They should pause and read this article. It has yeah. spawned so many debates with me and other colleagues, some of my friends. It's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, so, I mean, this is kind of burned up, like, I don't know writer Twitter and also legal Twitter to a to an to a certain extent. Um what were your big I mean, where do you want to start here? I mean there's well we I mean, we can to, distill the like discourse a little yeah, bit. Yeah, to top line it, there are two women who are varying degrees of successful as creative writers. Right. And one of them donates a kidney, makes a public show of that, and the other one later on writes a story that features kidney donation and there's yeah. a dispute about whether or not that's okay. Um, to me, the devil's in the details about what yeah. goes on here. You know, exactly how you take pieces of someone's real life and repurpose it into art is very interesting. Yeah. Um, and this is interesting too, because like it's 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 pretty clear that like I think it's pretty well settled that just like taking experiences or things that you encounter in the real world and incorporating them into your writing is like pretty above board. I think basically every writer who does fiction does that to some extent. This was an interesting case, I guess, because there was a, a literal written piece of, there was a Facebook post that this woman who donated her kidney put out into the world that then found its way into this other woman's story. A um, lot of litigation ensued. I right. thought it copyright was copyright lawsuit is what Yeah, came yeah, yeah, out of copyright that. lawsuit is still going on. Um I thought it was even beyond that, which is, you know, there are some interesting there, there's the discussion of like the Andy Warhol copyright case um where he sort of did a did a painting of a photograph of Prince and all of that. Right. Um beyond all of that, uh I thought it was a really interesting window into the world of like you say I don't know, mildly successful fiction writers, the grudges they hold, the axes they grind, the tea that they spill, whatever. Um, I have long wanted to devote more of my personal time to writing fiction. I mean, I have done some, but nothing that's been published or anything like that. Yeah. This really turns you off from it if you read this article. Yeah. It doesn't sound like the most welcoming community, the way these women really kind of went at each other. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know. There's there there were emails that were disclosed uh, saying some some you know whatever. I don't even know. Uh, you, you everyone should read the story. I thought it was a very well reported piece by the Times uh, beyond the kind of sort of 
silly and not that like important uh, stakes. Uh, it was very well written and and, and well reported. Um, and I, don't I know, agree with maybe, that. Maybe when these maybe when these legal disputes wind down, we'll we'll revisit it. But uh, really, an inter- for me, an interesting peek like into a world that I'm not really part of. But, I love yeah. that that's your takeaway because my conversation with everyone I've talked about this with is literally it comes down to like a tribalism. Like, whose team are you on? <laughs> yeah, right. Are you team woman that donated the kidney or team writer that wrote about it? Um, and you know, I won't. I don't really have a team. I think they both did some bad stuff to each other, but it's an interesting sort of Rorschach test of yeah, where you yeah. land on this. So that's part of the beauty of the article, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm against anyone who goes onto Facebook and talks to people about how they didn't interact with my earlier Facebook post. That to me <laughs> That's a fair point. That to me is like the original sin of a lot of this dispute and if you've read the story you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, um we could talk about this for an entire show if we wanted to, I'm sure. Uh we do have quite an interesting show uh to get to today though, right Amber? Yeah, definitely. We talk a little later in today's show with Jack Queen, who's our senior white collar reporter. And we get into um, something called the China Initiative, which was meant to root out Chinese um, espionage in the yes. U.S. and protect trade secrets and IP. And it's been wielded in a way that's really targeted the academic world. So we talk about that with Jack. Yes. Uh, super interesting talk with Jack. We were happy to have him back on the show. And there's um, a lot of interesting detail in his story and in our interview about the sort of dragnet that went on um, sort of to, to, to root out espionage, but, but sort of like cast a, a very wide and some would say uh, too wide of a net. Um, but we do have some news to get to before we uh, throw it to our interview with Jack. Uh, so why don't you get us started here? Yeah, you know I love employment law. Yeah. I also love talking about big dollar verdicts. They're exciting. And mm-hmm. this is both of those things. Um, yes. This week we saw a huge one. A California federal jury awarded $137 million to a black former Tesla subcontractor. He had sued after being subjected to racially hostile work environment at a Tesla factory in California. Yeah, I mean, this this checks a lot of sort of newsworthiness boxes as we decide what and what not to cover here. Um, it's a huge dollar amount. It's obviously a hugely successful company. Um, and we are always interested in workplace discrimination claims. What exactly um, were the allegations here and what was found out? Yeah, so... Uh, Just to break down that award a little bit, the jury awarded, uh, the man's name is Owen Diaz. He was awarded $6.9 million in compensatory damages, but an additional whopping $130 million in punitive damages. Mm -hmm. Like I said, Diaz had worked for a Tesla subcontractor at one of Tesla's California factories. He and his son had also worked there. Um, They both alleged hostile work environment, racial harassment. They sued Tesla and two subcontractors. As the litigation progressed, it narrowed down. And what we ultimately ended up with in in this jury trial was just Owen Diaz against Tesla. So during the trial, Diaz gave a lot of pretty compelling testimony. He tearfully got on the stand and talked about how the N-word was used nearly daily on the factory floor. Mm -hmm. There were allegations that he had heard it at least 60 times. Um, How a supervisor had called him boy and he explained on the stand the connotations of that terminology when referring to a black man. He drew, um, he talked about how someone had drawn a racist cartoon in the factory. So a lot of pretty pervasive stuff was explained here. He called the conditions at this Tesla plant a scene, quote, straight from the Jim Crow era. 
-hmm. and also said that Tesla managers really didn't take any meaningful actions to stop this racist behavior. So Diaz gave that testimony. Like I said, it was it was widely regarded as pretty compelling. Um, He was also backed up during the jury trial by several other plant workers who testified about the use of the N-word, seeing that racist cartoon and basically corroborated what he had to say. Uh, obviously, extremely explosive allegations um, and clearly ones that held sway um, in court here, though I do it because it's so like explicit and not even sort of, you know, the, there are lots of discrimination lawsuits, whether it's racial or gender based or whatever, where these things take root in subtler ways. This, of course, is not subtle, uh, at least what's being alleged. So I am curious to know exactly how the company defended itself i can't imagine it said that like this conduct is per se good or okay i would imagine there was some kind of distancing done a little bit from like the corporate sort of you know entity from like the people who were doing this stuff or like what was going on distancing is the exact right word instead of flat out denying these allegations or pushing back in that way there was a little softening of what they said was going on. But basically, their main argument from Tesla was, hey, this is not our fault. The staffing company that was Diaz's direct employer is the one that should have trained the subcontractors on its harassment policy and taking care of any issues and investigation as things started to go wrong. So they basically said, hey, we have a subcontractor and they're responsible here, not us. Yeah. That argument didn't go over too well during the trial, though. Um, Tesla's human resources administrator testified, saying that Tesla had an expectation that that staffing company would investigate the allegations um, when a subcontractor was involved, like it was here. Yep. But when asked about how exactly Tesla ensures that allegations of racial harassment are properly investigated, if Tesla is, in fact, delegating those investigations, Mm -hmm. this human resources director said that there's not really one fixed method for them to ensure that. Um, there weren't clear. There wasn't any clear guidance on how they should be carried out or handled in a standardized way. So they had really ceded too much control and pushed too much of it off onto subcontractors, and and that proved their downfall in the eyes of the jury. Yeah, I mean there there is a certain sort of buck stops here uh, element to the when various you know company you know uh, obligations are like siphoned out to like other companies that like that staff your your workforce or anything but like you you do have to you you, you may be on the hook to you know make sure that they are uh, obliging by your various policies and things like that um, which does make a lot of sense given how this played out this is obviously like a very explosive uh, fact pattern and uh, I would imagine there were some other sort of bits of color from the trial that I think we would bear uh, exploration here. What uh, what else went down? Yeah, our own Hannah Alborazi covered this trial extensively, and she had some really great reporting as it was un- unfolding. One of the early things I thought was very interesting is about Batson challenges. I'm not sure if you remember those. We've talked about them a few times on Pro Se, but those are used to forbid the use of peremptory challenges to exclude jurors for purely racial reasons. Right, right. Tesla had used peremptory strikes to nix the black jurors that remained in the jury pool after other um, other jury strikes had happened for other reasons. The judge in this case issued a written order explaining why he'd sustained a Batson challenge about that against one of those jurors. So Tesla used one of those strikes against a potential juror for what they said was two reasons. One was that he was hard to understand, according to Tesla. Mm -hmm. And the second was that this potential black juror 
had a personal experience with someone calling him the N-word on the job when he worked at a grocery store. And when he reported it to a manager, nothing really happened. Okay. The judge said that that wasn't a good reason, that this was clearly still impermissible. Here's the quote from the judge. This reason is not race neutral. It's intrinsically and inexorably intertwined with juror number 26's race. If a party could get around Batson by arguing that jurors who had been treated differently because of their race can be excluded, Batson would mean nothing. Yeah, I mean, this is the judge is clearly breathing quite a bit of life into the purpose of those uh, of those rules. I mean, the idea that this person is saying that they experienced or, or at least witnessed some racial discrimination if their experience of that is, you know, means to keep them off the jury, then then the implication there is pretty clear. So, yeah, I mean, lots of intrigue there in terms of even just the jury selection before even before we got to the to the merits claim. But in terms of this ruling against Tesla, I mean, do we know? Um, can we read anything into it beyond? I mean, it's, it's obviously like we've said a couple of times here, a very sort of nakedly um, like sort of unabashed fact pattern. But is there anything that could reverberate? outward beyond beyond sure. Tesla here. There's a few things I would say about that. The first is the caveat we always give when it's a jury verdict. Uh, Tesla's going to appeal. This right. could be struck down in some way or the jury verdict could be lessened in some way. We'll have to wait and see on that. But also, you know, you say it's a pretty striking fact pattern, but as a person who reads a lot of cases about and claims about discrimination in all forms, right. it's not as striking as you would think, unfortunately. This kind of stuff still happens in America fairly regularly. So, you know, this could be an object lesson for how big these verdicts could get. Yeah. Um, the attorney for uh, Diaz, his name is Bernard Alexander, said that essentially, you know, he slammed Tesla for caring more about generating uh, cars quickly than the the safety and the comfort of the workers. And that is not an unknown claim to Tesla in other contexts. Um, Tesla's work environment had come under some scrutiny during the pandemic because there was not only allegations of discrimination, but also various labor rights violations, poor treatment of workers who were worried mm -hmm. about the coronavirus, that kind of stuff. And I think that's fairly common these days at big factories. So there's sort of a broader societal thing going on here. Um our own Amanda Ottaway looked into some of the big takeaways of this verdict in particular and what we can make of it for people beyond Tesla. And there were a couple big ones. The first is just because a subcontractor is involved doesn't mean the other employer in this situation can just blame it all on the subcontractor right, and avoid yeah. liability. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a big deal because that's not entirely settled case law. You have to figure out if someone's a joint employer. They said mm -hmm. Tesla was here. So that's a really interesting thing that that may become more of an issue. If you're trying to get out of liability with a subcontractor, it just might not work for a big company. Yeah. But the other thing going on, I think, is the background of we've come off a period in America where because of George Floyd's death, the Black Lives Matter movement and sort of the racial justice awakening, there's a lot of potential jurors out there who have a lot of pent up feelings about racism in America and what they will and will not tolerate. And I think we may see additional big verdicts as those people get impaneled on juries and just don't want big companies off the hook for investigating and handling issues like this swiftly and conclusively. So that's one big thing we'll have to watch moving forward. All right. Well, uh, last week we 
previewed the new Supreme Court term. Cases are being heard. Uh, petitions are being accepted and rejected. We are talking about a very interesting one that, that was actually rejected this week. It deals with the very prickly area of attorney-client privilege, which I suspect um, will grab a lot of our uh, listeners' attention. This is a case that uh, surrounds an IRS subpoena of a law firm asking for this law firm's client roster, um, basically asking for the list of people that this firm represents because the IRS uh, had suspicions of tax evasion by this firm and by its client. The high court's uh, denial here left this subpoena in place, so it, it, it said it's okay for the IRS to ask for those clients. Um, over the very loud protests of lots of tax attorneys who said that the case um, would or, or could present a pretty serious intrusion into the attorney-client relationship. Um, this is a tax dispute. Uh, there's like uh, a lot of different sort of angles here, but it is something that does cut right to the core of a very serious thing for, uh, for lots of attorneys. Yeah, we don't often on the show talk about certain denials because that essentially leaves you know, the status quo of whatever was Who cares decided about that? in the lower I mean, court. we have cert grant corner. We're doing cert denial <laughs> alley. I right. don't know. Yes. But I do understand why we're talking about this one today because it is very interesting to attorneys about what they can and cannot be forced to do yeah. when it comes to their clients. So what is it going on here? What exactly was at play? Yeah. So this case uh, bubbled up in about in like 2018 and it was a summons uh, it, it or rather it dealt with a summons that was issued from the IRS to a firm in Texas called Taylor Lohmeyer. And that is a firm in Texas that mostly specializes in tax matters. And the IRS basically um, in this summons called on the firm to disclose all of its clients or at least, or at least a, a, a chunk of its clients for tax matters uh, after, it uncover, after it uncovered potential tax fraud from this hedge fund manager who had consulted this firm for tax advice. So they were independently investigating this person for, for tax evasion, discovered that he had used this firm in aid of this tax evasion, and then issued a summons to the firm saying, hey, what other clients do you have to aid our potential investigations into other tax evaders? So um, they want to know who the firm is counseling. And as you can imagine, the firm filed a suit um, to block the subpoena, saying that by disclosing a client list uh, would basically violate core attorney-client privilege rules. And that, and that basically started us on the litigation that led us to the doorstep of the Supreme Court this week. So how did the lower courts analyze that question? Yeah, so it was pretty clear. The firm, the firm lost at every single level, even before being, being denied by the Supreme Court. So the case law in this specific case is, is quite clear. Um, there was a, a, a Texas federal court in 2019 found that the government had basically established that it's not like it was just randomly door knocking or witch hunting firms, you know, for the sake of like uncovering their clients, the the court had found that the summons was issued with the legitimate purpose of combating tax evasion by just simply identifying the firm's clients. And the district court said that the firm the firm was basically being sort of too liberal with its assertions about attorney client privilege and say it doesn't cover the things 
that you say it covers. So then the next year, 2020, uh, just a year after this, this federal court ruling, a Fifth Circuit panel basically agreed with them entirely, and it went a little bit deeper in its analysis, and it said that basically just a list of clients is not protected by privilege rules. It said that like it, it would be a different thing if the IRS was trying to obtain privileged communications, like legal advice, like communications between the attorney and the client, but just a list of names is not covered uh, in, in, in the view of this panel. Uh, there, was a, there was a push by the firm to rehear that case on banc. It was denied 9-8, so it was a close call in the Fifth Circuit. You know, there were eight judges who at least wanted to take another look, but it, uh, it was denied, and that gets us up here to the Supreme Court, uh, which, which denied the case. I do think it's interesting to point out that there were some judges on the circuit court that wanted to rehear this because it is interesting always, like, where exactly is that line of attorney-client privilege, and can something as simple as the client list be it? Um, clearly the justices didn't want to touch this. Uh, I mm-hmm. know they always deny cert without saying a lot, but right. what could we glean from, from this denial? Yeah. And that, and that was the case here too, we should say, I mean, like, like any number of cert petitions, this was denied without any commentary. And that means that the IRS will be able to enforce this summons against the firm, obtain its client list and any investigations that it might uh, carry out from that list would presumably be able to go forward. But I did want to note um, just that this this uh, petition attracted a lot of interest from the tax bar. Um, while it was while the while the petition was pending, uh, there was an uh, amicus brief filed by the American College of Tax Counsel, which is a tax attorneys group that often weighs in on Supreme Court uh, tax matters. That basically said that while um, they believe that the IRS is wrong on legal grounds, just saying that actually they, they do believe that client lists should be protected by these privilege rules. But they also warned that even if even beyond this sort of small factual matter here, uh, that uh, if the summons was allowed to sort of proceed unchecked, it could have far reaching consequences for just the way that tax lawyers do their job. Here was a quote from their amicus brief. Fundamental and historical protections of the attorney-client privilege will be adversely affected by the uncertainty created by the Fifth Circuit's decision, potentially subjecting clients' confidential motives for seeking legal advice to disclosure. This will lead to taxpayers being less candid with their attorneys or foregoing legal advice altogether. So if you want to read between the lines, they're like, hey, listen, we don't want people not coming to tax attorneys. We're not interested in that. We're tax attorneys. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they clearly have some concerns about like this will sort of in an effort to sort of shed more light on these matters. They are arguing that actually more secrecy might create, might be created, you know, like people not asking lawyers about potentially shady or not shady tax activities. So that was sort of one of their hangups, um, both the firm and this attorney group flagged a lot of other precedent that. That in their view does protect client lists from the government's reach, um, and basically said that you know various circuit courts have said different things here, which is basically what everybody says when they're looking to get a to get a Supreme Court review. So that's not that surprising. It's I guess too soon to say whether a lot of this doomsaying will come true. But now that we know that the IRS will be able to get this client list, I'm sure that this is something 
that the tax bar will be monitoring quite closely as uh, this and other investigations go forward. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. The China Initiative is a Trump-era program intended to root out Chinese state-sponsored economic espionage. But critics say it stirred up a toxic mix of racial profiling and prosecutorial misconduct, leaving innocent scientists to suffer the consequences. Here to tell us about it is senior white-collar reporter Jack Queen. Welcome to the show, Jack. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to be back. We got a deep one to talk about with you today. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. um, really recommend that people read your piece on this. It was very interesting. And it breaks down uh, this Justice Department program called the China Initiative. What is that exactly? Because I didn't really know much about it until I, I read your reporting. Yeah, it's, it's a little murky. It's this initiative that was set up in 2018 under then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And it's intended to root out what the government said was pervasive state-sponsored economic espionage uh, intended to steal trade secrets and sensitive technology from the U.S. And it, it started out with some quality cases, mostly focused on the private sector and infiltration there. But it's more of a bottom-up program, and there's not a lot of supervision from the top. And as U.S. attorneys' offices were encouraged from, by high-level officials to bring more and more cases, there was this shift where they started going after academics a lot more, almost exclusively Chinese-American academics. And the problem was almost none of them were actually charged with espionage. They started to get charged with things like failure to disclose or making false statements for you know, allegedly not noting an affiliation with a Chinese institution on government paperwork or a grant. Yeah, some sort of ticky tack stuff a little bit. It seemed like you were, it, 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 according to your reporting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it really, it really sort of devolved into that kind of, and the cases have not been going so well. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about that because your story lays out a very interesting dynamic here between this ostensibly well-intentioned anti-espionage program that then got pretty heavily weaponized against academics and the academic community. Um, And you included some pretty illustrative anecdotes in your reporting. Can you share exactly what we're talking about here, exactly how this affected scientists, academics, people like that? Sure. Yeah. There are about two dozen academics um, I was able to identify who were charged under this program. Again, only two of them formally accused of espionage. Right. But there were five in particular that I found particularly compelling. These were all part of the same investigation. They were these visiting Chinese scientists who were here on guest visas. So unlike a lot of the American citizens and longtime U.S. residents who have been charged at high profile institutions and stuff, These people didn't have any friends or any networks or connections in the country. Uh, They spoke English as a second language. They were here with young children, mothers, so forth. And the FBI's tactics with them were, I think it's fair to say, um, quite heavy handed. 
In particular, um, there was Chen Song, and she's a neurologist who was researching at Stanford University. Mm -hmm. And she lived with her aunt and young daughter in this little apartment in California. And the FBI came for her one morning. It was more than a half dozen agents. They were banging on the door of her apartment with their guns drawn. Some of them had raid jackets on. They marched Chen Song and her aunt outside barefoot in their pajamas, then went inside and searched the place. And her young daughter was crouched near a trash can crying. This is all based on sworn affidavits, none of which are disputed by the government. And she ultimately, all five of these cases were ultimately dismissed because they collapsed. But I think when you follow each of them throughout the course of the year in between, you see the sort of devastating effect that it had on these people's lives, even though Mm -hmm. they were ultimately acquitted. Two of these defendants spent more than a year in jail because they didn't have lawyers who made substantive filings in their cases. Another one spent seven months in jail. His fiance spent two months in jail, deemed a material witness in the case. And so I think those were pretty good examples of how the FBI has this mindset where the country and academia is crawling with Chinese spies. And then they set their sights on one and they just, frankly, they get a little carried away. And the one you just explained there, just to be very explicit, she was never charged with espionage, right? She was no. charged with some other much more minor crimes. What, what no, exactly was leveled against her? No, that's right. All of these defendants were charged with visa fraud. Essentially, what they were accused of doing, they all yeah. worked at Chinese military-run research hospitals. And so they were technically members of the People's Liberation Army civilian cadre, which doesn't really have clear analogs in the U.S., but essentially sometimes they have to wear formal military uniforms and technically they're in the military, but they don't receive any military training. Yeah. And none of them would consider this military training. And so, or at least most of them wouldn't. And yeah. so what they were accused of doing is on their visa applications, they answered no to have you ever served in the military. And the government alleged that because they were members of the PLA civilian cadre, this was a lie. And they had therefore lied in their applications. None of them were accused of trying to steal trade secrets or technology. Yeah, this 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 bubbles up a lot. I mean, I I report on this stuff, too. And it's like it's not I'm not I, I don't think we're trying to say that like Chinese espionage does not does not exist. And that's what this mm-hmm. like program was intended to root out but there is because of this entanglement that you're talking about with the sort of like state control of certain corporations or certain laboratories or whatever you like a single person could have some extended arm's length connection to the government or to the military that they are like vaguely aware of not aware of and that Mm -hmm. sort of can create problems when you when the when the government when the u.s government does this like intense Dragnet, um, mm-hmm. which I, which you illustrated quite well in the piece, and again, I would recommend everybody read that. Um, but let's talk about exactly the allegations against DOJ in this context. Um, mm-hmm. Is this, you know, it sounds like you're saying this initiative was, while targeted at, you know, weeding out spies, it it also un- it also just kind of uh, prosecuted more minor offenses like visa fraud, like you say, or something else, or really like visa offenses. What are the what what are the allegations sort of against DOJ in in the way they carried out this program? Well, basically what I mean civil rights groups say is that what the DOJ is doing here is largely criminalizing uh, international scientific collaboration, which between right. the US and China has been around for a very long time mm-hmm. and has until 
basically until before the inception of this program was encouraged as a way yes. to tap the immense research talent in China and foster friendly ties between our two countries. Uh, and this was just a complete about face. And that's another criticism of the program is that so many, the, the entire academic world was caught very off guard by this up to administrations and faculty and, you know, especially these defendants themselves, because all of a yep. sudden these little paperwork errors that used to be treated as, you know, a regulatory thing where, oh, just go back and fix it, something like that, were now being charged as felonies. Mm-hmm. And they were often insinuated as espionage cases. The government would announce these charges with a lot of fanfare and bring them under the banner of the China Initiative. But then when you actually dig into them, no, no, nobody's accused of espionage here. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like this also wasn't uniformly agreed to among the Justice Department, even. I mean, you have some uh, yeah, instances right. in your reporting where even other DOJ people were saying like, hey, this isn't really what this program was for. No, yeah, that's that's another key thing. And litigation has exposed some internal memos and reports within the FBI where you have pretty high-level analysts writing these reports where they're saying, well, wait a minute. In fact, one of them was pushing back on receiving a commendation for her work on these cases. She concluded that they likely had minimal impact on technology Mm. transfer, expressed concerns that the defendants felt harassed and bullied and that the FBI was damaging its very valuable relationships with universities and research institutions. And in another report, another analyst noted that uh, these disclosure failures on these visa forms, alleged disclosure failures, were very ambiguous, that most of these people would probably not consider themselves active duty members of the PLA or have military training at all. And that the cases were very ambiguous and probably shouldn't have been brought was the implication of the report, essentially. And what did you hear from other critics of the program? I mean, I I think we were sort of getting around to the idea that on some level, this is racial profiling because it is called the China Initiative and it's going after these Asian um, academics and scientists. So um, what have groups like the ACLU said about this? Well, they don't like it. You wouldn't be surprised to hear. Get out of here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I think, so I think what a lot of them will say is, one, to be fair, there is evidence that the People's Republic of China cho- poses a unique economic espionage. Yes. There is evidence that there is state-directed espionage going on. I think the real question, though, is whether or not the threat lies in academia to nearly the extent that the government seems to believe it does. Because, mm-hmm. frankly, there's no evidence, there's very little evidence in the public record that academia poses any sort of threat. And what a lot of critics of this program will say is, look, when you frame an initiative like this around the particular country, you are inevitably going to produce cases that are predicated on the ethnicity of a suspect, right? Yeah, and it's, what happens it, it's is, kind of a necessary construct because you've identified this state as an adversarial actor. Yeah. Right, and they're not, it's not based on the conduct necessarily. The investigations, yep. for instance, you would not see a German-American professor being charged with three felonies and being raided by the FBI because he failed to disclose on a grant form that he has a research collaboration with a German university going on. You just wouldn't see that because there's yeah. not there's not a Germany initiative. And yeah. so I think that's the main concern for these groups is that despite what the government says, because the government says it prosecutes conduct, not you know ethnicity or whatever. But I think it, it's fairly clear when you look at the genesis of these cases and how they play out that these people are being investigated and targeted for scrutiny because they have Chinese names. OK, 
now we we mentioned off the top that this the the, the China initiative is a Trump era program. The Trump administration obviously took a very aggressive posture towards Beijing. Um, I know this, of course, in the trade context. This extends into sort of national security and other things. But where does that leave us now? We are uh, almost a year into the first year of the Biden administration, which has taken sort of a cautious hand on China policy in certain contexts, but not always. Um, is there a reason for Chinese academics to still be concerned? Um, what has been the effect of this on research institutions uh, now? Like, where are we at? I mean, is this a relic of a past administration or are there lingering concerns? No, absolutely not. I mean, it's a Trump era program. I would say it's also a Biden era program at this yeah. point. I think, as you articulated, in many respects, I think Biden's foreign policy is largely in step with Trump's. It's, it's fairly yeah. hawkish. And I think the administration is frankly reluctant to be seen as softening up on China by scrapping an initiative That's a big like part this. of it, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so I think we haven't seen any indications that Garland or the Biden administration, Attorney General Merrick Garland or the Biden administration is interested in scrapping this initiative. One thing is that we're still waiting for a new leader at the National Security Division. Nominee right. Matt Olson is expected to be confirmed, but until he's in there, there might not be able to make any major changes. But there are um, a half dozen pending cases against academics, and all of them have drawn tremendous criticism and yielded allegations of the similar types of misconduct by investigators and so forth. They're all the same type of failure to disclose cases. And those trial dates are coming up in the coming months. Uh, some of them are going to be delayed, it seems. But those will be a huge test for the government going forward here. And if they choose to press forward and actually mm -hmm. take these cases to trial, they're going to be taking a big risk because over the summer, the government suffered a terrible black eye with a, a mistrial against an academic in Tennessee named Anming Hu. And the trial was a debacle for the government. Uh, one of the jurors later told the press that it was a disgrace and that the FBI owed this man an apology. After the mistrial, the judge tossed the case, saying there was no possible way a jury oh, could convict him. Yeah. yeah. And so it, it, these upcoming trials are going to be very high stakes for the Justice Department and this program. And it'll be interesting to see if they do take them to trial, what happens and whether or not Matt Olson will be showing up at NATSEC with, um, you know, another another loss on his plate. Jack, thanks so much for coming to explain all this. It's really interesting. I think there's going to be plenty for us to watch, as you just explained. Uh, people should definitely check out your reporting on this if they want to know more. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. show is something offbeat and I just got some big questions for you Alex just see where you land on these can you get car insurance to cover damages related to getting a sexually transmitted disease if you got that disease by having sex in an insured car these questions feel oddly targeted at me and I don't appreciate <laughs> and, and I don't appreciate the implication at all well, regardless of how you wanted to answer that question, can you stay anonymous in your court filings while you litigate about it? So, yeah. I don't know, this Alex, is, a, is yeah, this, this is a super suit? interesting case. 
yeah, this one's a weird one, right? Like, yes. uh, I never thought we'd be talking about this on the show, but, you know, happy to get into the intricacies of how strange this is. Yeah, so let's talk about it. I mean, we're talking about sort of, a, you know, where the... Where you know where the limits of car insurance uh, end, and this is taking it to some very interesting places. So let's talk about the let's talk about the facts of the case because while they are very intimate, they're quite important. So let's hear it. So Geico is the insurance company here. It is actually looking to toss a case where an insured person who in court documents up to now is just called MB, the initials. Mm-hmm. That person, MB, claims the insurance company should cover damages that have arisen from spreading a sexually transmitted disease, in this case, HPV, while having unprotected sex in the insured automobile. Mm. The person who contracted the disease is also just initials in the filings right now, known as MO, demanded that Geico pay her a million dollars to resolve her claims against MB, the (laughs) insured person. Okay. Uh, Geico uh, pretty logically said the auto policy just doesn't work like this. <laughs> I mean, Geico basically said what you would expect, that it only applies to bodily injuries that arise out of, quote, out of the ownership, maintenance, or use of the auto. And this is not what they mean by use. I, hey, listen, I you can use a car for lots of different things. And I'm sure that that is what these people uh, will argue if they have to. Uh, but if anybody's um, wondering, it's a 2014 Hyundai Genesis. Thank you question. so much for clarifying. I know it was on the tip of everybody's tongue. Key details. Wh- key details. What are we talking about here? Uh, what, what you know? What car exactly? A 2014 Hyundai Genesis. Is that what you yes. said? Uh huh. Okay. Interesting. Uh, let's talk about the anonymity part of it before I say something uh, that is that is going to get me killed. <laughs> uh, so we're joking a lot on? about the fact pattern here, but I actually think this anonymity question is a pretty pretty interesting it really one. is yeah um so a magistrate judge has come down and said the people involved in this suit can't stay anonymous as the case continues okay the quote from the magistrate was while many people would prefer to keep details about their sex lives private the 10th circuit has repeatedly made clear that the risk that a party may suffer some embarrassment by being named in the pleadings is not enough to allow them to proceed anonymously look i mean first of all i i have a couple things to say to these people um, first of all, congrats on the sex. <laughs> Second of all, I'm sympathetic to not wanting it to be known that you were out here having sex in a Hyundai Genesis. But I but that is an interesting point by the judge. It's just like your embarrassment is not quite enough here. You know, there's well, there are harm things to take, yeah, to take into mean, account. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, Alex. And you know, you are being a sympathetic person here, but the judge correctly well, only, to, only only to a point, but yes. Well, the judge pretty correctly, and I think logically, people will follow this <laughs> this idea um, that the case itself does present some novel issues about what insurance could cover. Um, so, understanding all the details, including who the people are, is important to assessing the fact pattern here and how it applies. Mm-hmm. But also, the magistrate judge said that you know these allegedly private details become way less private when you file a suit yourself about it. And it's yes. a core part of your suit is the thing you say is so embarrassing that you can't have your name on these allegations. So, mm-hmm. you know, essentially that's the judge saying, hey, um, you made this public, like you chose to make this public. 
I'm just curious to know what the gecko thinks of all of this. Don't you? Aren't aren't you curious? It's like, oh, they they's they's bumping uglies in the on day, isn't they? You know. I think the gecko wants to stay very far away from this one. I that, would imagine. That, I mean, he's that a that little th- creature is so wholesome. Well, yeah. Well, and he's a mascot. He doesn't he doesn't need to be tangled up in this stuff. I uh, it is interesting though. I mean, all joking aside, this is the offbeat section. Um, it is interesting though that I mean, you know, we're kind of. You know, we're kind of poking fun at like sort of like, oh, can you can you recoup an insurance claim if you got HPV in a in an insured car from the insurer? Um, and the judge but is at least not dismissing it out of hand, right? I mean, they're saying also like some really weird questions here though about like, are they just trying to game the system? Because is this the only place this couple engaged in that activity? Yes, just in the car, or and that's in I their... don't know, were they at a house or at a hotel or whatever? So. This also gets at why that anonymity is a problem. That yes. you kind of need to know who they are to suss out the full fact pattern here. Yes. So I know it's a joke and we've been like joking about it because it's funny, but I weirdly think that this strange little case could provide some interesting novel case law. Well, buckle up, as they say. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll great way to end it. this segment, yeah. Alex. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you, Amber. I'll see you next week. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Jack Queen, and our contributing reporters, Hannah Albarazzi and Amy Lee Rosen. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us a five-star and written review wherever you're listening now. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.